0: Well, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, open up to uh, Romans chapter 10. We've been doing a series on prayer, and we're going to finish that up today. Although, as I finish it up, I can think about three or four, five, six, a dozen more things I'd like to talk about. Um, Hey, I have a great idea for next Sunday. I was just kind of playing with this at the beginning of the service. Tell me what you think. I think we'll have Rich do the announcements again next Sunday, but let's tie his hands together and see if he can do it. Um, I don't think he can do it. I don't think he can do it. He's not here, so I shouldn't, uh, shouldn't take shots at him. I'm sure you he won't hear about that. Um, so we've been doing this series on prayer, and uh, the idea is not to make you feel guilty, um, but it is to encourage you to pray more. Uh, the idea sometimes, just as a pastor, the things that, prayer requests that I get, people asking to pray for, which is fine, but I would say 80, 90% of them are health-related, And so we have a group of people who have received Jesus Christ, who believe that he is sufficient, and we're constantly praying for more comfort, more help, for more days. That's okay. But I think there's other things that we can be praying about. So we looked at kind of three types of prayer to ask, seek, and knock. We looked at praying for the lost, praying for the prodigal. We talked about praying for... Uh, healing, but we talked about that it's wider than just physical. It's spiritual, it's emotional, it's relational. Uh, we talked about praying for the impossible, and when we talked about that, we saw that God has already done impossible things in us, and so we can pray that God will do impossible things in other people. And then we've kind of ratcheted it up a little bit, and we've ca- called these last four messages dangerous prayers. And the dangerous prayers were search me, Break me, use me, and then this morning, send me. Now, before you check out, you go, I'm too old to go. Uh, we're going to look at send in a broader con- uh, context than that, uh, our role in sending, but also the idea that God may send us uh, far away or God may send us to our next door neighbor. Okay, so send in a much broader scope than that. So, Uh, send me is our prayer. And as we look at Romans chapter 10, obviously we're jumping in the middle of a a great theological letter that Paul wrote to the Roman church before he even got there. And he is, I think, towards the the middle or end of his his journey here as an apostle to the Gentiles. He is broken hearted over the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles in the church. And in Romans, he makes this great argument of God's sovereignty in his election and his, his choosing Israel and, and all that that means, but then also in saving the Gentiles. And so Paul in chapter 10 uh, is in, in chapter 9 arguing for all sorts of God's sovereignty, but in chapter 10, he's talking more about our responsibility. And so he says, verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire... And prayer to God for them. Who's them here? We're talking about Israel. Just kind of jump up a few verses at the beginning here of chapter, end of chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? Here's his conclusions that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching. The law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if they were it was based on works. So Paul is arguing, says, Look, Israel chased after the law, and they never obtained righteousness. The Gentiles didn't chase after it, but they received it because of faith. And so Paul says, Brothers, my heart desire and my prayer to God for them, Israel, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So hear this, church. You can have a zeal and not have a faith. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, in verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, Paul gives this illustration that just muddles it for us a little bit. So let me preempt the muddle here a little bit. He is quoting from part of Moses' farewell speech. And so he he is making an argument here of the confusion of Israel chasing after something that they did not actually obtain. For Moses writes about righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does does the command shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? So, What is he talking about? The word is near you. You don't have to go up to heaven to get it. You don't have to go down to the abyss to get it. The word is near you. What is the word? What is the word that is near? In your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. And he's talking about faith in Christ. So you don't have to go looking for it. Because if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord over all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. We'll stop there. This morning we're gonna look at four things. The problem, zeal without faith in Christ. I want to just look briefly at the passion that Paul had to see people saved. Then we're going to look at the pursuit that those that need to confess and believe. And then we're going to look at the preacher, those who are sent. And again, we're going to use a broader term for sent here, and we'll look at that in the Greek in just a little bit. But the idea of being sent overseas, being sent to preach as a pastor, being sent to talk to your neighbor. So the problem, zeal without faith in Jesus. Why do we need to pray, send me? Or send someone? Or why does Jesus ask us to pray for workers for the harvest? Because the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Why do do we need to do that? Because there's a problem. And the problem is, number one, apart from faith in Christ alone, We are dead. Paul has made this argument already in Romans chapter 6 where he says, for the wages of sin is death. Now, sometimes the Bible uses hyperbole, but I think it's being literal here. We are literally, physically headed towards death, and we are spiritually dead in that we are separated from Christ and will be eternally separated from Christ apart from faith in Christ alone. So there's a problem We're dead. And somebody needs to be sent to share the good news that there's life in Jesus Christ. But the problem that Paul sees is, first, that we're dead. Second, apart from faith in Christ alone, there is shame. It's not a word that we use often in our culture, but Paul is, is using this, I believe, on purpose in verse 33, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him, that is Christ, will not be put to shame. That's what he's saying. Those who reject Christ will what? Be put to shame. Now, in this culture, that was, that's a big statement. It's an honor-shame culture. To be shamed, to shame the family, to be a shame in, in your name and what you've done. Paul is saying is that some people will pursue righteousness, good living, uh, being their own God, being successful, being the, the person that they thought they should be, and they're gonna get to the end of their life and find that they were pursuing the wrong thing. What a waste. Well, what Paul says, what a shame. Third, apart from faith in Christ alone, we are lost. Uh, we don't like this idea of being uh, lost, uh, um, a term that offends, okay? I don't think you should lead with that one as you're talking with your neighbor. Hey, you're lost, um, We start with the idea that you are created in the image of God, that that image has been marred because of the fall, and God is redeeming us. He is is reshaping us back into our original stature before him. But because of that fall, we are separated from God, we are lost, and so that's why Paul says, my heart's desire, my prayer, is that they would be saved, there's so many stories right now. I just, uh, and I love I love getting outdoors. I like, you know, getting out on a, on a nice hike just as much the next guy. But some of these folks that are hiking in this weather right now, and people are, they're lost. They're living, they're out. It's like, I just want to know like who decides to go hiking on a snow-covered trail and doesn't bring some matches nowadays. Um, but we're, we're out there with search and rescue, and, and the news is reporting it. And you start to get, I don't know about you, but I start to get emotionally involved. Did they find him? Is he there? Well, how did he get there? Why did he go alone, or she, or whatever it is? And they're lost. They need to get found. And what Paul is saying is God's people who have a zeal, they know the Old Testament, but they're lost. They're lost. We the have people that we love, people that you worked alongside of or work alongside of family members that you know and you can't wait to see and get together at the gatherings, but you know in, their, in your heart of hearts that they are lost. And that should impact our prayer life. It should impact our words. God, man, I, that person is really annoying to me. I wish they'd stop being annoying. Maybe they need to find Jesus first. Paul had a passion for that. Apart from faith in Christ alone, we're ignorant. There's another thing you don't want to lead with that one, but, but Paul says here in verse 3, for, the, for, being, uh, for being ignorant of righteousness. He looks right at the Jewish people and said, you are ignorant of what righteousness actually is. Now look, again, I wouldn't lead with that in your sharing the good news with somebody. But too often we think of lost people, those who have been around the church too long. You've been in these doors and everything that you think of is church, church. What am I gonna do in church? When are we going to eat in church again? When are we going to sing in church again? When are we going to fellowship again? And it's church, church, church. And all those people out there, they're, they don't know Jesus, and I, I don't relate well to them. And we start to see them sometimes as the enemy. Let me just say this. Lost people are not the enemy. They are victims of the enemy. Satan has blinded their eyes. He has them trapped. And we are to go rescue them. And then finally, apart from faith in Christ alone, we are on a futile quest. And verse four is kind of confusing. He says, for Christ is the end of the law of righteousness through everyone who believes. He's saying, look, if you Jewish people would stop pursuing righteousness in the law and just receive Christ, it would be all over, it'd be done. You would get there. But you're still in this journey looking for something that you're never going to obtain. How many people do you know that are looking for happiness and joy and contentment and peace in a place that they are never going to find it? Because you're not gonna find it apart from Christ. That's the problem. One of the things that stands out to me is the passion that Paul has. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be safe. That's, that's what drives Paul, it's what Paul thinks about. Paul woke up in the morning. He was concerned for the lost. It's so interesting to me that that God says, you know what, Paul? I'm going to make you the apostle to the Gentiles. And he does it. Plants churches all over. Even when they're throwing stones at him and driving him out of the city, church pops up. And Paul is a successful missionary to the Gentiles. And Paul says, I got a secret for you. Man, my heart's desire is that my people would come to know Jesus Christ. I tell you, just sometimes God plants you in a place and says, This is what I want you to do, and I'd really like to do this. Eh, We'll get around to that. But man, it just, he just had a passion for it. Now I want to show you one more verse in Romans chapter 10. I didn't read it. It's at the end. Paul makes these arguments from Isaiah about how Israel's rejecting and not understanding and all this stuff. In verse 21, look at it, it's just an amazing verse to have this highlighted. But of Israel, he says, God says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. You want to know the heart of God. And I am angry at you. I will not obey you. I, you say yes, I say no. You say it's white, I say it's black. And God just is sitting there with his arms out waiting for them to come home. I don't care what it is you've done. I don't care how much you've rejected Jesus Christ in the past. I don't care what sin it is that haunts you. I want you to see the picture of God with open arms saying, come home, I love you. We see the passion of Paul, but Paul's passion is based on God's passion. So my question for you this morning is, how about you? How passionate are you For those that don't know Jesus Christ. How much time does that get thinking? How much time does that impact your prayer life? God is just, his love is just, just one more, just one more, just one more. As a church, my prayer is that we would become so driven to reach just one more person in our community that every once in a while somebody would have to be, hey, can we slow down a little bit? Oh, man. Does it drive us? Does God's heart, does our heart look like God's heart? Beautiful picture of the passion there. The pursuit is to get people to the point where they confess Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. Beautiful verse, I quote it all the time. Um, Let me just kind of open it up just a little bit this morning. We are to confess the truth of Jesus. Paul has already made the point that we're dead, that we're ignorant of the true gospel, um, that we are uh, in opposition to it, uh, that we are headed for shame, that we're separated from God, that we need to put our faith, the faith, in Christ alone. So Paul says the way that we do that is we with our mouth, Jesus is Lord. We say it. We confess it. This is what I believe to be true. We don't mumble it. We don't just say it at church. It's a confession. When pressed, it's what comes out of us. I don't know anything, but I know that Jesus is Lord. Now let me just say something about Lord there. It's a pretty neat little word. And we as Americans don't like it. Let's just change it with the word king. America's all about we rebelled from the king. We all get a vote. We all get some fair representation. Not in the kingdom of God. We are declaring that he is king. His word is the last word. He gets to declare. He is the truth. We are saying, Jesus is Lord. I, there are groups of people in the church, and I'm not here to argue with anybody, but want to say, some people can believe in Jesus, and then later on they got to declare. I just don't see how you can say he's Jesus without saying he is Lord. That's it. That's what we're to confess. So we need to confess the truth of Jesus, and second, we need to confess the need for Jesus. Now, I say that because we live in a culture that doesn't really want to talk about sin. We don't want to talk about that we're separated from God. We don't want to talk about that we can't do it on ourselves. We want to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. I don't even have bootstraps anymore, but I want to do it. When I say confess my need for Jesus, what we are saying is I can't do it on my own. I can't pull myself up. I can't be good enough. I can't obtain to the law. I'll never be perfect. So I need Jesus. We confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. We believe that he is Lord, that he is king. Saving faith confesses Jesus as Lord. We said that. That's it. And you can just write in there, king, number one. Second, saving faith believes truth and believes that, that Jesus it's fully God that he lived a perfect life. That he died for you and rose again. We believe the truth of God's word. Saving faith rests in that truth. The pendulum of works and faith just continues to swing throughout history. Israel said, no, we've got to work, we've got to work, we've got to work. Then we'll obtain righteousness. And we say, oh no, no, it's by faith. It's by faith. And we don't have to do anything. Wait a second. There's there's a result of faith. But at some point in time, look, we just need to to rest in the fact that Jesus is enough. He is sufficient. And some of us wrestle with that. Some of you are sitting in church, and it's like, "I, I know, I feel like I need to do one more thing. Can I get baptized again? Can I come forward again? Can I raise my hand again? Am I not serving in the right place? What's the one more thing that I need to do? Just rest in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Saving faith is satisfied in truth. You know, um, we all struggle, I think, some more than others, with this idea of contentment, especially in our culture. We're bombarded with new cars, new houses, new clothes, new gadgets, okay? You go out and you buy the new, latest, you know, screaming phone, whatever that is that can do everything, and as soon as you get home, they advertise the next one. And you're like, I just left the store. Why didn't they tell me about that one? Because they know you'll be back next week to get that one. We're never satisfied. It's never enough. And so we're reminded this morning that whatever it is we're going through, we are satisfied in what God says is yet to come His kingdom forever and ever and ever. That God is good. And his promises come true. We're satisfied with it. Now the problem is, sometimes we have zeal without faith in Christ. The passion is that we want to see, I hope, the lost get found. We want them to come to the point that they confess Jesus as Lord and believe in their heart that God raised them from the dead. And if you're here this morning and you have not done that, that is my top priority, that you would come to a place to recognize Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But I know for many people I'm preaching to the choir. And I'm going to move to the fourth point, this idea of preacher. Now, over the years, I've been called pastor. I've never been called reverend. I, I think by people in the community sometimes. But sometimes in the church, especially when I was a younger preacher back in the day, uh, I had a, some guys in the church that would call me preacher. One guy liked to call me preacher boy, which I thought was derogatory, but I took it. (laughs) For most of us, I'm the preacher. Our missionaries are sent to preach. But the word that's used, and I'm not going to quite say it right in the Greek, and Carmen will correct me later, but "evangelicon." You can hear that word evangelize, evangelism in the word. It means to proclaim the good news. It doesn't mean to be a preacher. So when you see the word preacher there, it's not a position. It's to proclaim the good news. I came across this video recently. It's been around for a long time. It is of a celebrity who is a very adamant atheist. And somebody at one of his shows Uh, tried to evangelize him. And this is his response. Let's watch it. For somebody who doesn't believe in God, now, I've watched the video a few times. He says one guy isn't going to make a difference. It seemed to me that guy made a pretty big impact on him. (laughs) I think those were tears he was wiping away. I don't think he would admit that. But how much do you have to hate somebody How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that you have eternal life and not want to share that with somebody? Um, Powerful. Paul calls the preachers are those who are sent in verses fourteen in following. Paul addresses two problems, our hindrances to the gospel. The first is that we have people that don't believe. He says, "Man, I wish." I wish Israel believed this. They don't believe it, but I wish they they did believe. But now he introduces a second problem. And the second problem is, there are people who would believe, but who have not heard. So Paul calls the church, writing to Rome here, he calls the church to send preachers. Now again, we're using a broader term here. This means to, um, to proclaim good news. You have received the good news, and so we are to send that good news or share that good news. He uses the word preach here. It means, just means to share the, proclaim the good news. And preachers are sent. Somebody has to send them out. Preachers are sent to local churches. In, in our way of thinking, we call Pastors. The church gets together and they they do a big search and, uh, and they take a bunch of resumes and they ask a bunch of questions and then they interview and then the pastor comes and preaches and then the church calls the pastor. But understand that something has happened before that. God has put a calling on a person's life. I still remember. I was young. I was 16, 17 years old. And I preached for the first time. And afterwards, standing with the youth group, we had Mexico. I preached one of the, sun, uh, one of the evening services on a mission trip, And I was standing around. And somebody asked me, what are you going to do now? And I remember looking them in the eye and saying, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. And that's all I pursue. God put a calling on my life. Now, I've met with other guys who are starting to feel the calling of God in their life, and they're like, I don't know what to do with this. And I said, let me just tell you what you're feeling isn't natural, so it's from God. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's really hard, and it's difficult, and you need to be sure that's God talking to you, because if it's not, you're going to hate yourself later. I don't say it quite like that. Rich will tell you, he's like, you tried to talk me out of it. Yes, I did. Make sure that that's God's calling in your life. So yeah, the church has a calling, but God has a calling. God, I believe in that process, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the search committee process, but I believe and we hope that God is in that process. Second, preachers are sent to the mission field. We recognize that there's places that need to hear the gospel so people who have a calling from God, the church sends them out there as the church's representative to preach the gospel and the church supports them. There are those that are sent to your neighbor. Oh, now this is getting personal. I'm okay with the preacher. I'm okay with the missionary. But you've got somebody across the street who doesn't know Jesus Christ. And if we as a church can send people halfway around the world, you better believe that we're also supposed to send people across the streets. Now, our vision at the church, love God, love people, follow Jesus, make disciples. Let me just kind of quiz you a little bit here. Love God. Is that something we're all supposed to do or just the preacher? All. Oh. Love people. Is that something we're all supposed to do or just the preacher? Follow Jesus. Something we're all supposed to do or just the preacher? Make disciples. All. All. That's what we're called to do as a church. Maybe you're sent to a specific group. Maybe God's given you a passion for children or for youth. It's okay. Preach the gospel there. Share the good news there. Maybe some of you are called, and this might be the hardest mission field of all, to your family. Oh, man. Right? Man, that's hard. Share with your siblings, maybe your parents, your grandkids, whatever it is, that's, that's a hard thing to do. But God's calling you to, to be the proclaimer of good news. Preachers are sent. Second, preachers are beautiful. I just had to use this as a point here. He says it, not me, so I'm just giving you God's word here. He says in verse 15, what? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Man, what a beautiful thing when people feel called and are sent and they go. God says it's a beautiful thing. Notice he doesn't say how beautiful are them when they have converts. Just look, God just says it's just beautiful when they go and they and they say it, they do it. It's beautiful to me. It's beautiful when they do that. Preachers are gospel centered. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, "Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us?" Look the point, and we, we get into so many different discussions about the end times and, and uh, miracles in the Bible and all these different things. Can we just be reminded that we need to stay focused that God loved us so much that He sent His Son? Yeah, and I'm not going to convince you on every doctrine and different little thing that I believe as I've studied, I study, but I hope that we can agree that Christ is sufficient that we can keep the gospel centered, or as we like to say around here, let's keep the main thing the main thing, and the main thing is Jesus. Preachers are Christ-centered. We need to keep that focus on Christ. Now, when we talk about being gospel-centered and Christ-centered, what does that mean for us as a church? We, we uh, as Rich said this morning, we're starting this new study Uh, Next Sunday, Uh, the books are in the back. We want you to grab one. We want everybody to do it, everybody. Um, I think they're easy enough to read to your kids and ask them a few questions. I think they're deep enough for you that have been around and studied God's word for a long time to get something out of it. And it's just a daily devotion. Add it to your morning, add it to your evening, whatever you're doing, discuss it as a family. Bring it up in your small group. Small group leaders. Bring it up in your small group. Maybe if you're not in a small group, maybe we can start a couple just small ones for a short period of time to, to talk about this. But as we understand who Christ is and how we've been forgiven, then we are to apply it in ways. And those are the prayers at the end. So let's all do this together. Let's stay Christ centered. Let's stay gospel centered. So, what's the application to action? Look, pray for those who are sent. Um, you know whether it's uh, you know rich and working with the youth or uh, children's ministry, uh, and whether it's uh, this good community group that we've got going on. We pray for those who are sent. Pray for our missionaries. Pray for your pastors. Pray for those who you know are on mission, sharing Christ with their family. Pray for those who are sent. And th- maybe this is just a little bit harder, but provide for those that are sent. Sacrificially give so that those who are out doing the work can not be distracted by all the other things. And then pray that God would send you. Now, for some of you, um, you think, man, I'm too old. Uh, There might be a group here that says, I'm too old. Well, again, your neighbor, not that far away, you can make it you're here this morning, you can make it to your neighbor's house. Okay. Some of you are maybe getting towards the end of your career, getting close to retirement. And I just want to say that the, one of the biggest groups that is going out on the mission field right now is the retired group, retired from their first career, second career as, as missionaries. So maybe God's calling you to do that. Maybe you're saying, I'm too young. Oh no, this is the perfect time to pray. Is God calling me God calling me to give full time to the proclaiming of the good news. So pray that God would send you to dangerous prayer. Because if you say, God send me, he might say, okay. You don't have to ask me twice. No, really, God, do you want to think about it? No, I'm good. Are you good? I've shared this before, but I. Uh, I remember as a youth, felt called to, to uh, be a pastor. Um, I remember going forward to the churches during the missions conferences and saying, God, I'll go wherever you want me to go. But in the back of my mind, I can, I can remember this. I don't know what it was with the missionaries in our church that were from Africa, but they terrified me. Too many, too many photos of the food that they were eating, I think. And I said, God, I'll go anywhere, but not, you know, Africa. I can remember standing in front of a church going, we feel that God's maybe calling us to go to Africa as missionaries and in the back of my mind, I'm like going, don't appreciate your sense of humor, God. If you say, God, I'll go, he just might send you. Let's pray. God, thanks for this morning. Thank you for your word and the way that we're challenged in it. Um, Lord, I pray, uh, pray for our little church that you would send us, that we have so many testimonies of those who have gone. Lord, may there be a revival in our church of those yet to go, whether that's to a neighbor or to a far-off country or to full-time ministry. Lord, may this church continue to be a sending church the glory of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.